This is Kim Richmond, President of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. So please welcome to the stage Gail Levant and Richard Kraft. The first thing, before we really get into your career and everything, is I was um, out walking this morning with my husband, and I started thinking, I've, I've known Richard forever since forever. And I just, you are in for such a treat because he's so much fun and he has so much to give and share with everybody. I'm just so glad we have such a nice turnout today. All these years I've never asked you, Richard, did you ever study a musical instrument? I played trumpet for about four weeks in elementary school (laughs) and we lived in an apartment and I couldn't practice so I was shoving tube socks into the horn and uh, I used that as my excuse to bail after Uh, so I think I could play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Oh, okay. So, yes, a very rich background in, <laughs> in music. Okay, so... No, no, nothing. I, right. I, as a matter of fact, I loved movie music, and my parents bought a little cheap organ for the living room, and I started buying sheet music for movies that I loved the music, but I didn't know how to read them. And then I came up... Somehow I figured out this note equals this... And I didn't know that they had names like A, B, C. So I thought they had, I came up with a numbering system that C was one. And then I wrote on the organ the numbers. And then I had to figure out, like, if I was figuring out a piece of music, how to notate. I didn't know what a sharp or a flat was. So I called those pluses. So a B plus, it was uh, very elaborate, right? And I certainly did not know how to notate n- duration of notes, right. but I could pluck out my favorite John Barry theme or my favorite Jerry Goldsmith theme on my little cheap organ, much to the misery of my parents. So, how old were you then? I was probably seven. Cool. Well, so the weird part, in hindsight, is that a seven-year-old wanted to pick out Jerry Goldsmith melodies yeah. on his cheap organ, but that was me. Well. Richard is probably next to myself because we both are the biggest kids in the world. We never grew up. We have the energy of, of a child and the enthusiasm of a child. And so when I called Richard and I said, Richard, please, we'd love to have you come and do an interview for ASMAX luncheon. And can I host you? And he said, absolutely. Just tell me where and when. And I, the only thing I forgot to tell him was the Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. And I have good Hawaiian shirts, so I would have won, by the way. <laughs> well, OK, so my first question, and I think what we'll do, which Richard would love to do if we don't make them too long, is after we've talked about a subject, if you have a question, spun, we'll, we'll, you can raise a question about what we've just talked about. If not, we'll wait till the end. Anyway, so. Tell us about how you got started in your career and became interested in our business. 
Well, um, the relevant part of the story is I grew up in Bakersfield, and there's nothing to do there. And mm -hmm. uh, we were the odd family. It, we didn't belong there in any way, shape, or form. And uh, my dad was fixated on classic movies. So he would drive from Bakersfield to the County Museum here in Los Angeles when they would show old movies, and he would take his two boys with him. And I remember one day we were going to see Adventures of Robin Hood, and my dad said right before the screening, oh, pay attention to the music. And I thought, oh, are they going to sing songs? He goes, no, there's this really good music in the background. And I didn't even understand what that concept was, but then I saw the movie, and there was this great, lush Eric Wolfgang Korngold score, and I went crazy, like madly in love with this. And my brother did too. He was three years older. And we started collecting movie soundtrack albums by, my dad was a book collector, so he would go to Goodwill and Salvation Army every Saturday to go find old books there. And then he would bring us, and he'd let us buy any record we wanted, because records were a nickel. So we would buy anything that said the words original motion picture soundtrack. I didn't know what the movies were, I didn't know who the composers were, but we started, I started noticing the ones that said music by Jerry Goldsmith were better than the ones that said music by somebody else. And I started developing some taste and preferences of one composer over another. And my brother was very sick. He had Crohn's disease, so he was bedridden quite a bit. And so collecting soundtrack albums turned into corresponding with other soundtrack collectors around the world. And it was a great hobby to have if you're stuck in your bedroom. And we ended up, by the time I got out of high school, we had several thousand soundtrack albums. And my parents were school teachers, so they were the type who whatever we would be interested in, they would encourage, which included, we started calling up film composers because in those days, everyone was listed in the phone book. So you could, you could just call directory information and ask for Elmer Bernstein and get Elmer Bernstein on the phone. And so my parents, we would say, Mr. Bernstein, we're such fans. Can we come interview you? And my brother was probably 10. I was 7. And my parents would drive us off and drop us off at Elmer Bernstein's house. And we'd spend a few hours with him. And he thought it was cute and adorable. And we'd have our little... Uh, index, you know, cards with these questions and a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and we'd ask them a bunch of stuff. And I, that's how I met a lot of composers was interviewing them as a child for my little fan thing. And uh, but because I knew somehow my uh, organ playing of film themes was not going to be my career, uh, I never considered, since I'm not a musician, that I was going to get into this business. And my original intention was I was going to get into film advertising. I wanted to write um, the copy for movie posters. I thought I'd be good at that. So I came to LA, got a job passing out free movie tickets on the street corner for recruited screenings, mm -hmm. and went for one semester to Otis Parson College of Design to get into advertising. And it was not a good match. And a friend who I was passing out free movie tickets with got a job working at a low-budget film company almost across the street, which was Canon Films, run by these two Israelis, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, who were making so many horrible movies fast. 
and they needed someone to operate their Xerox machine in the publicity department. And that was your first job? Yep. <laughs> I was qualified to hit start. And I noticed the stuff I was Xeroxing was really poorly written because nobody at the company, English was their first language. So I volunteered to rewrite their publicity material and make it better. Good. And that led, like a week later, they said, oh, we don't have any information on this movie. The director's in the editing room. Why don't you go talk to him? So I'm talking to him, and while I'm interviewing him, I notice he's doing the temp music for his movie, and his choices were horrible. And I said, why do you have such bad music that you're using? And he said, these are my choices. And he pointed to a shelf with about six records. And I go, I have thousands of records at home. Let me um, bring them in. And so I brought in a stack of stuff, and the director said, do you know how to, I can't listen to this, do you know how to operate an editing machine? And I go, sure, which I didn't. And so I ended up doing a temp track at night after my publicity job. And I did that on about three movies, which led to, they had hired Ennio Morricone to score a movie and they needed someone to pick him up at the airport. And they figured, hey, you, touch records, you go get Morricone. And so I picked him up in my Ford Pinto, and I thought, oh my god, this is going to be the greatest moment of my life. I'm going to get to spend an entire car ride with Morricone and ask him everything I've ever wanted to know. And then he either didn't speak English or pretended not to, so there was no communication. Oh. We spotted the movie the next day, because the, they then said, because they did such a good job picking him up at the airport, you are now the music department. And um, so we spotted the film. There were like 54 starts. Morricone nodded a bunch. And then like three weeks later, we get a tape with no indication of anything with about 14 pieces of random music. Right. And it was my job to figure out how to turn that into an entire score. So. But the cool part of this was even though I had no idea what I was doing, I knew more than the people I was working for. So I could make endless mistakes and no one would notice. That's wonderful. And I could <laughs> hire composers, which led to me getting to work with people who I, like Elmer Bernstein, I hired to do a movie. So let me ask you a yeah. question. Now we regress, but go back. Because yes. you obviously had an interview with him at the age of seven. Yeah. Right? Yes. Did you tell him the story? Of course. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. And I had <laughs> randomly stayed in touch with these people because I'm a fan. So whenever they would be at like a USC or UCLA seminar, I would show up with my grocery bag fill of, filled with albums for them to sign. And I remember I was one of these was going to be Jerry Goldsmith. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to meet Jerry Goldsmith. And I have all these records for him to sign. I show up with these shopping bags full of his records. And he starts signing. And after a few, he goes, I'm tired of doing this. You do it, kid. And <laughs> they were in alphabetical order. So he quit signing right around Chinatown. Oh. So I got halfway through the seas. And it was kind of rude to me. And then later, my brother snuck into a recording session of his for Twilight Zone, the motion picture. And Jerry had him thrown out. And then a few years later, when I became Jerry's agent, I told him about <laughs> this. I go, you got to learn. You never know who's going to be taking 10% of your money in the future. That's right. So you had all this going on at Canon Films. Yes. And then your next play move was to Bart Melander? Yes. So what happened was... Which was a 
talent agency. Yeah, exactly. What happened was Canon was involved in some shady activities involving falsifying cue sheets on movies. And I thought, I'm going to do such a good job. I'm going to go to the head of the company and report that somebody is putting down fake names of music under some weird publishing company. And I told him about it and was instantaneously fired. And it was like, duh, it's the guy who's using a pseudonym and it's his publishing company. Right. So I called up Elmer Bernstein. Almost all stories end up with Elmer Bernstein. <laughs> I called him up and I said, I don't have a job. What should I do? And he said, well, you know more about the music than my agent does. Why don't you go work for him? And he put in a call to Al Bart. And I got a job at this agency, uh, Bart Melander, to be their receptionist. And my very first day on the job, I took their um, roster, which was about 150 composers, and I crossed off every name except for four. And I said, here's what I think we should do with our company. Now, I'm the receptionist who's been there one day. And I said, these 140-something people are not going anywhere. They're either old news, or they're not very talented. I had opinions about everything. So I said, let's But did you recognize all the names? Oh, of course. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I knew they all were. I just knew they weren't going anywhere. And on my first day on the job, I rummaged through the closets, yeah. and I found their old roster, which had everybody. And I was like, what happened? And then I discovered there was a eight years previously or four years previously, Gorfane Schwartz started a competing agency, mm -hmm. and all of the names that I wish we had had gone over there. And so I, I'm going to revitalize our company, which I've been working at for about three hours. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I came in with a list also of who we should sign. Right. And the first name on the list was Danny Elfman. And they go, who is he? I go, well, he's only scored his brother's movie, this thing called Forbidden Zone, but he's in a band, Oingo Boingo, and it sounds like movie music, and I think he represents the kind of thing that's going to be the future. And we were at a lunch at Ben Frank, was that the name of it, on Sunset, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they asked the waitress if she knew who Danny Elfman was, and she did not, so that was the end of signing him. Right. The second name on the list was Michael Kamen, who had only done a few British films, yeah. and they said, he lives in England, that means expensive long-distance phone calls. And then I had James Horner, was number three, who had just done a few things, and they said, he's difficult. And I go, uh-huh, and he's really talented, maybe we could benefit by having that. And the last one was Mark Isham, and they said, that's not music, that's noise. So I was like, Less than a day on the job, I was already trying to run the place and realized I am not really in sync with them. But to their credit, they promoted me to being a junior agent after being a receptionist for about two weeks. And they said, a few beats later, Danny on his own ended up doing Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And they said, isn't that that guy you wanted to sign? And... Um, I said, yeah. And they go, well, why don't we go sign them? So we had lunch with them, and I said, so what kind of movies do you want to do? And he goes, I love fantasy films and horror and science fiction. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, you don't want to do movies like that. You want to do movies like Terms of Endearment, which was the big movie that year. Mm -hmm. And Danny said, I would projectile vomit trying to watch the movie. <laughs> uh, and so he did not sign with us because he felt 
we did not understand who he was. Who he was. Yeah. But what I started doing is every time there was a movie I thought he would like, I'd call him up and go, oh, David Cronenberg's doing a remake of The Fly. Here's his phone number if you want to call him. Or Paul Verhoeven, I read the script of a movie, Robocop. Maybe you'd be interested. And he was never available to do these because he still had his band. But after about the fourth recommendation that I called him on, he said, if I ever score a movie, I'd like you to be my agent. So he became my first client. Right. So where does Saraband come into that? Is that, that before? That comes in later. later. Okay, so, go. All right. so now I'm well, well, Why don't we just yes. see if anybody has yes, a question? Anybody have, have, have a question while we're at this? Yeah, right here. Yes. What year was it when you started? I'm trying to figure it out. It was probably around 84, 85. How long were you with Bart Melander? About two or three years because in there... I remember very vividly one of the first things I got to do was work with Alan Silvestri because the Canon Films was making a movie called Delta Force, some Chuck Norris movie, mm -hmm. and they wanted Alan because he had just done Back to the Future, I guess, or Romancing in Stone, one of the two, and I called Al up and I was really nervous because he wasn't my client and I was just a little pipsqueak. And I said, there's this really bad Chuck Norris movie. I'm sure you're not going to want to do it, but I'll run it by you. And he said, here's the deal. If you get me the movie for twice the amount of money I've ever been paid, I'll take it and I'll take you out to dinner to celebrate. Cool. And if I don't have to do the movie and they pass, I'll take you out to dinner to celebrate. <laughs> and so... I called him up in one phone call. I said, he'll do the film, but I just made up a number. And they instantly said yes. And this is my old boss, Menachem, who I... Right. And the yes came so quickly. I said, oh, plus you have to take him and his family to Israel to research the music. So they, I got him a paid trip to Israel. Oh. And uh, so that was sort of... I was always good at negotiating. Yeah. When I was a little kid, um, it's really hot in Bakersfield, and nobody wants to ride their bicycle in the middle of the afternoon. So I would go early morning to 7-Eleven, which was a mile or two away on my bike, and buy candy, and then set up a TV tray in front of my house in the middle of the day when it was really hot, and resell the candy at tremendous markups. Melted. And, yes. Melted. No, the big sellers were sugar babies, because they okay. don't melt, okay. and I sold them per baby, not a package. <laughs> so I was just really good at selling stuff. So you were you were um, with Bart Melanda for two to three years. Yeah. And then you went on to open your own agency? No. no. Verez came in the middle. Okay. So Verez Saraband was the only real label that was a, like a fan label putting out movie soundtracks when nobody was doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I was always dealing with them putting the Bart Melander clients stuff on their label and one day they offered me a job to run it and I thought well this will be fun the conditions of me being hired were I could put out anything I wanted as long as I did not lose the money so I had free reign to just and we put out 50 records a year the entire company was myself the guy who owned the company who didn't even own a record player so he could have been in the widget business mm -hmm. And the shipping guy. That was the whole company. And so 
we didn't, this is pre-computer, so like the album cover design I would do, and it involved getting typeset and then getting wax and using a T-square and any record during my era, all the type is crooked. Because <laughs> I am a very sloppy person. <laughs> and so I would sequence the records, do the album covers, make the deals. So I learned so much and I got to work now with every composer. So was putting out tons of records of Jerry Goldsmith and uh, Horner and a lot, a lot of people. So I was in a great position to meet everybody, work with everybody, and the other condition of working there was I got to keep my one client that I wanted to keep, who was Danny. And so while I was at Verez putting out these records, I was also Danny Elfman's agent, which is when Batman happened. Yeah, but how did you become his agent? Because Oh, he was projectile vomiting on terms of endearment, but then <laughs> once I called him enough with free phone numbers of people making movies, he eventually, his neighbor in Topanga was Emilio Estevez and was making a movie called Wisdom, and the opening line of the script was, the main character drives down the street to the pulsating music of Danny Elfman. <laughs> and so he said, I think I'm gonna do this movie. And I figured I'm in a really good position to make a good deal since it's in the script his name. Yeah. So I called them and again, I made up a ridiculous number and they agreed to it. And that was sort of the beginning of my relationship with Danny. Oh, that's great. But had you actually started your agency at that no, point? No, no, that was, that was the just, wisdom was over at right. Barbara Lander. Then I went to Verez. Right. And Batman happened during Verez, which then led to being offered to go to a big talent agency, ICM, because they had just started a film music department. So... Did you go there? Yes. Oh, you did? Okay. I did go there okay. and was miserable and asked to leave the second week I was there. <laughs> I said, this is a horrible mistake. I was brought I over by a yeah. friend who was running the department. We did not discuss why I was going there. I thought I was going there to conquer the world. He thought I was going there to assist him. And he did not want to sign anybody. And I wanted to sign everybody. And so, sort of. I went to the head of the company with him and said, look, I've only been here a few weeks. There's a misunderstanding. I think I should leave. And the head of the company is like, what's the problem? And he's go, well, I want to sign these people. And he goes, what's the problem? So now I'm like burying my friend. It's the worst of all worlds. We're not speaking to each other. And I, even though we're partners, I'm just off signing. And the first person I signed was Jerry Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. So now... After Jerry Goldsmith signed, it was I had two clients, Danny Elfman and Jerry Goldsmith, which sort of represented two generations of you amazing did. people. Yeah. Which and then my third client was Mark Shaman. Mm -hmm. And it just went really well, except for the steam coming out of the ears of my partner who loathed me. So every six months I would go to the company and say, Can I please get out of my contract? Because I hated being there. And How long were you there in total? total of three years, I think. I had a seven-year contract. The devil has less <laughs> prohibitive terms than I had. And along during that time, were you thinking about possibly getting your own agency going? No, I, I was just thinking of getting out of there. No, okay. I just was miserable. Okay. And, and there was no advantage of being at a large agency. It wasn't like oh, an ICM director is going to hire an ICM composer. It didn't work out at all that way. But I'm doing very well. 
and I'm always asking to leave the company. And on one Monday, they bring me into the office, the head of the company goes, you hate working here. I go, oh, very much. <laughs> and they said, can you get out of here by Friday? And I go, sure, what? And they go, well, it's a little embarrassing, but we just stole Julia Roberts' agent and we need your parking space. Oh my God. Yeah, so the most valuable thing I had to offer was my parking space. So, and what was such a blessing is they said, we're gonna shut down the music department, you can take all your clients with you, right. you can keep all your commissions that are coming in because Jerry Goldsmith was the brother-in-law of the head of the company. Oh and God. so he wanted to not cause a problem, he wanted to be nice, yep. So and they paid me one year salary. So I turned to my assistant and said, we have till Friday to start an agency, but we at least had clients, money and commissions coming in. Right. And so that's how I started my own company, which was right down the street at the Hollywood Athletic Club. And uh, that following Monday was the beginning of my agency. That's amazing. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, and thanks. And, and what was great was now I could do whatever I wanted without irritating somebody. It was like, now it's all on me. I'm going to succeed or I'm going to fail on my own. It's not tied to somebody else. You and your partner. I didn't have a partner. Oh. I'm just me. Okay. I'm trying to think. My guess would have been about 91 or 2. I'm now getting bad at dates, but around there. Probably 91 or 2, because my son was born in 90, and it was around then. I think I, I got, had a child, started my own company, got divorced and bought a house all in the same year or so. So I like checklist all the big life events in one fell swoop. Um, and, uh, oh, someone's hands up. That's John's. That's John, I can't, it's a shape of a man with good hair. <laughs> That's my husband. <laughs> no, I do not. I do have, a lot of these interviews were published in a fan magazine out of Belgium. We, my brother and I were their Hollywood correspondents. Yeah. And so I am blessed to have a lot of these old interviews. I got to interview people like Miklas Rocha. I mean, I, I'm very lucky because of my age. I fit in a time when a lot of great old composers were still alive. And so it was insane going to Miklas Rocha's house. It's like, how are you, Miklas Rocha? And I'm here. And I asked him, I said, do you still get offered movies? And he goes, yes, I was just offered a, a, a horrible movie. It was about an airplane that was going to crash. And they told me it was a comedy. How is an airplane crashing funny? And it was the movie Airplane. <laughs> he missed that it, all the jokes mm -hmm. went right over his head. And they had also offered him Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. And he goes, she was such a nice lady. <laughs> uh, so, but it was, it, was, it was truly spectacular to be at his house. And um, I still have all my LPs. So they are in my office as a reminder of Boy, I own a bunch of LPs. I, it was, it's, it's like my dusty past. So when you had your agency going and you had a few composers, yes. big composers, good composers, yes. 
from that point on, did you reach out to other composers to have them come with you? Because obviously you had your competition. Right. What, here's what, I showed up, timing's everything. I, Gorfain Schwartz had been in business long enough that they had their established clients. And I tended not to get many of their clients. I tended to find the outliers, which were people who didn't even, Mark Shaman came into my office. He had never scored a movie. Right. Sandy DeCrescent recommended he meet with me because he had done arrangements on When Harry Met Sally. And he walks into my office, and as soon as he walked in the door, I go, you look like the fetus of my unborn child. Because <laughs> he does. He looks like a mini Richard. He, and and he, he, he would have loved <laughs> yes. that. And I go, I don't understand what you do. And he goes, I want to be the gay Marvin Hamlish. I want to be <laughs> the center square on Hollywood Square. Right. And I go, do you have any music I can listen to? And he goes, no, I've just done song arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I go, I'm going to sell you with no music. And he goes, that's your job. So the very first thing that happened is Rob Reiner, who directed When Harry Met Sally, which was all adaptations of songs, was making Misery. And he hired him. And I said, I don't want to talk you out of this, Rob, but why do you have the faith that Mark could score a thriller? It's not even a comedy. And he said, talent is talent. Mm -hmm. So then... Billy Crystal was making City Slickers, and I was talking to the director, and I, he said, Billy mentioned this guy, Mark Shaman. Can I listen to some of his music? I said, well, he is going to be doing Misery. He hasn't recorded it, but that's a thriller. Yours is at least a comedy, and Rob Reiner says, talent is talent. So he hired Mark. And then there was a third movie Maybe Adam's Family. There was like three huge movies that he got hired on before anyone heard any of his music. And I remember going to the scoring sessions like so nervous. Like this music had better be good. Because if it's good, he's going to have a great career. Right. And if not, it will have all collapsed like a house of cards. Yeah. And, um, and it turned out really well. Turned out really good. And so I, I rarely went after Gorevain Schwartz clients. I also have a theory that pretty much everyone's with the agent they're supposed to be with. It's like mat matchmaking. And Gorevain Schwartz clients tend to be the people who were student body presidents. And they used to beat up my clients who were in the AV club. So, <laughs> so uh, I tend to attract really passionate, um, nerdy just my clients are really passionate and they're really um, they come from a lot of different backgrounds mm -hmm. and I'm blessed that considering I was going up against a very established agency part of it was I made a decision to be a boutique so I was only going to represent a few people and they had like 150 clients so at what point, what year, do you remember how long you'd been around or did um, Mark come in to your agency and then when did Alan Menken come in? Alan Menken, came in, two incredible Alan people. Menken came in late because Alan Menken had a manager in New York. Mm -hmm. And every year when I was in New York, I'd sit down with the manager and say, you're great at Broadway, but why don't I work on Alan's non-Disney film career? And every year he said no, but we'd have a lovely lunch. Mm -hmm. And then he passed away, and I was at an event with Alan Menken, and Alan said, you're an agent, why don't you be my agent for film? 
And I got bold and I said, I don't know anything about Broadway, but would you trust me for one year to also do your Broadway stuff? And I go, I promise I won't screw it up. If I start going down a road and I'm not doing a good job, I'll be the first to say I'm in over my head. Right. But it may work to your advantage that I'm an outsider and I can do the I don't know nothing about birth and babies thing to all these New York people. And let's see how it goes. And so Alan, I've been working with for about 10 years or so. And he introduced me into the world of making Broadway deals. And now I represent a number of Broadway composers. And I learned that feel on the job. That's terrific. And one of the key things is, so Alan was with me for about six months. And he wasn't working much in LA anymore. And he wasn't working at Disney. And I had lunch with him and I said, you must hate me right now because your old manager was working with you during the heyday of one big Disney musical after another. And I'm kind of the guy giving you nothing but bad news. Because one of the things I do as an agent is do reconnaissance and uh, forensic work. So everybody's got something in their career that needs fixing. No matter where you are in your career, there's some next thing that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I do when I start representing someone is figure out what's going on. Why are the people that used to hire you not hiring you? Or what's the perception of you in the marketplace? Or who did you piss off? And because I'm never afraid of my clients, which always was helpful. I was never feeling like if I get fired, my life comes to an end. Right. So I've always come from a place of, I'm here, it's like going to the doctor. They don't hide from you that you have cancer to make you feel better. And I don't hide from my clients what I find out in the world. And again, I tend to attract clients who want to hear it. So it's a good match. And so, with Alan, it was a matter of finding out what things needed to be repaired. And so when you're giving all this input, mm-hmm. whether it's something that might be uncomfortable for the composer, do they take your advice um, for the most I'm part? I'm very lucky that I'm a good match for the people who stay with me for more than a week or two. I have people fire me after a week or two. Right. Because it's like... I don't want to hear this. Because <laughs> I spend more time arguing with my clients than I spend arguing with the film studios. I'm trying to help them navigate tricky waters. And they don't always... An artist is most... First of all, nobody. we were just discussing this. Tennis players cannot see how they hold the racket. No matter how good of a player they are, they need a coach. And I, I just bought a car yesterday. I am a horrible negotiator for myself. I, the guy gave me a price and I just said yes, because I didn't want the discomfort of arguing anymore. What happened to the Tesla? It, this is for Dara. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not letting go of the Tesla. Uh, but, so, I just said yes. I was the weakest negotiator ever, because none of us are good at negotiating for ourselves. So, I tend to um, be I'm, I'm two things. I'm Mr. Bad News, which I deliver, hopefully, 
with a bit kindly, of a kindly with a sense of humor. Try. <laughs> and I'm also, Mark Shaman calls me the Dr. Phil of film music, <laughs> in that I'm mainly talking about the psychology of what's going on. Yeah. And I'm pretty blunt in a Dr. Phil sort of way, mm-hmm. because it doesn't do anyone a favor Beat to compound, beating around the bush, or if something's the problem, it's the problem whether it's acknowledged or it's not acknowledged. And if people kind of hire me to fix the problems. And again, you can have a problem at the very beginning of your career, the middle of your career, late in your career. And I enjoy, I'm willing to do the work to fix the problem. Right, and when you have a composer that hasn't worked for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to jumpstart his career yes. because you make suggestions that are really constructive, maybe not what he wants to hear. It's never what they want to hear because it usually consists of damage control of burnt bridges and usually reposition themselves price-wise in the market. Mm-hmm. It's like if you have a house that hasn't sold for two years, the realtor is probably going to say, we need to lower We need to lower the price. Yeah. And then what's great is once you're in demand again, you get the price back up. Right. So, so I always see it as a short-term step fix. to get to you make money when people want you. Right. That's sort of it. Yeah. That's an elite. They all have had their score yeah, thrown out. Yeah, that's an elite club. <laughs> yes, it is everybody, and it it means nothing. It's all how it's handled. If you fixate on it, and it becomes your there are people who just walk around with their misery, and it's, someone said an expression, your car tends to go where you have your steering wheel pointed, and you wonder, like you're on a deserted road, there's one telephone pole, and someone has smashed into it with their car. How did that happen? It's because the person was so busy when their car lost control, I don't want to hit that telephone pole, but all they're saying is the word telephone pole, and they gravitate right into it. And people who have a setback, and we all have setbacks, we have scores thrown out, we have relationships that fall apart, we, they write a bad score, they didn't budget correctly, something goes wrong. It's what you do after it goes wrong. And there are people who have a very good reset button. And there are people who are still grousing about something that happened 15 years ago. They're stuck. They're stuck. And I tend to gravitate to people with pretty good reset buttons. Mm -hmm. Or I work on fixing their reset button. Because it's too volatile of a business to be harboring stuff. And it doesn't mean anything. It, you got your score thrown out. So? So you've joined an elite club. Yes, and it doesn't mean anything. It's like something that really put everything in perspective. I remember being very upset about a deal on some movie, and everything went wrong, and it was just horrible. And then I was at the checkout line at the grocery store a few months later, and there that movie was for sale on DVD at the cash register for three ninety-five. And it was like, this was the movie I was so upset about. And it's like, it's now the same as buying a melon or this movie. <laughs> Everyone just moved on. Right. It doesn't, why we're so lucky in this business, they make a lot of movies. 
Oh, yeah. So it's not lack. There's not like, there's three jobs, and if you screwed up, you're doomed. And now, more than ever, there's movies, there's television, there's uh, streaming movies, there's, there's, there's music libraries, there's trailers, there's video games. Never has there been more media to put music onto. So it's very ripe. And if you're going to spend all your time thinking about the thing that went horribly wrong, every minute you spend doing that, you're not thinking about, well, I just go get another job. Um, and, and I also, if there's a pattern of people I represent, they tend to, by nature, be workhorses. Alexander Desplat likes working, so he can write masterful scores and do eight of them a year. Chris Beck works a lot, Marco Beltrami works a lot, Alan Menken works a lot, Danny Elfman works a lot. I, it's in their nature. They want to be working every day of their life. So how many clients do you represent now? I think we probably have about 30. Are you able to keep most of them working? I have a theory. At any given time, one-third of clients are happy, mm -hmm. one-third are okay, and one-third are miserable. And it alternates who's who that day, but it's much easier to manage if you have 30 clients, 10 unhappy people, because you could probably do something about it, right. you know, the other agencies tend to have about 150 clients. And so I would blow my brains out if I woke up going, oh my God, there are 50 people hating me today. And, and I would have no ability to fix what was going wrong with the 50 people, because it's just there's not enough There's hours. not enough time. There's not enough time. I know over the years when I've been on film scores and have talked to different composers and I hear them say, I'm so frustrated, you know, my agent doesn't do this and doesn't do that and blah, 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 and they hop, skip to different agencies, and you've probably kept yours pretty well. I'm very proud of the longevity of my clients. I mean, most of my clients have been with me for decades, and once in a while there's a hop hopper who has to see if the grass is greener, mm -hmm. and I get it. Right. And sometimes I've run out of good ideas, and they've I shouldn't be their agent anymore. It's like there was a period of time it was working and I tried everything in my bag of tricks and maybe somebody else has a different bag of tricks. Um, I just, I, I have been fired by so many good composers and I don't hold any, Alan Silvestri fired me. He later became a client. And if the day I signed Alan Silvestri, it said, this is a contract that you're going to do 12 movies with me, and then I'm going to move on. I always said, where do I sign? Right. It wasn't this is a lifetime commitment. Yeah. And for a bunch of complex reasons, Alan left. And I look at Alan Silvestri not with resentment like you dirty dog. It's like, oh, my God, I got to work with him on 12 movies. I loved Alan Silvestri before I represent him. I love him after. When I hear his music, it touches me in the way why I'm even in the business. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a cranky pants about, <laughs> I also kind of have Alzheimer's, I think. I just don't, re I selective Alzheimer's. <laughs> like if it involves negativity, I just tend not to remember it very yeah. well. No, I, I do the same thing. I move away from it. I have a long memory, but I move away from <laughs> it. Um, so today, obviously, since there's so many different genres that can be Composers can be hired for an up and coming. Do you reach out to up and coming composers? How do you find them? Do That's they a, call you? Do you say to them, let's say a new composer it's so calls rare you? We do you, do you, do you? Well, I was going to say, do you, if a new composer called you and he hasn't done a film, do you say, I can't touch you until you've done a film? No, I say, 
until you have something I can parlay into something of value. Me personally, I only tend to work on major studio films and the highest independent films. Mm -hmm. So I can't be of a great deal of use to somebody who I can't sell on those jobs. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do the biggest movie like Alexander Desplat, Laura Engel, my partner, and I signed after you'd done Girl with the Pearl Earring. Now, that wasn't a huge movie, but at least it was a movie you could mention and people would know what it was. And the music was extraordinary. We knew if we played this music to people and they knew what the Girl with the Pearl Earring was, we could get them in the door. But what happens if you meet somebody that hasn't had the career yet, but yet you know the capacity of that person's writing? I wait wait until they get to a point where I can do something for them. And I, I, I mean, it's I'm not that interested in signing people. So once in a while, I'll get obsessed with a new scorer. Like when I saw Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia, I was like, I must represent John Bryan. And he performed every Friday night at Largo. And I went every Friday night and went up to him every week and said, I want to represent you. And every week he turned me down, and every week I went back. And then he eventually was offered Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. And I said, here's the deal. You don't want an agent, but you probably are going to do this movie. I'll do it for free. I'll be your agent. I'll make your deal. I won't commission you. But what you'll find out is you're going to fall in love with me, or you're going to hate me. I'm going to fall in love with you, or I'll end up hating you. But I believe in you so much, I would want to try this. And so I ended up doing that movie for him for free, and we've been together ever since, and I love him. It's just he's not interchangeable with every other composer. But it's rare that I go gaga crazy over somebody's music. It's just... I'm in that thing when you've already worked with John Barry and Elmer Bernstein and Henry Mancini and Basil Polidorus and mm. it's like it's hard to put up with yeah he's pretty good I'm just not into hey he's pretty good yeah if you were just starting your career today oh I'd be yeah. and everybody's of their time like in the room somewhere is an age the first time my partner and I have taken on Another agent is Sarah Kovacs, who's somewhere, and she's of another time, another generation, another set of people. This is really nice. And she's going to have her stories of her Mm -hmm. people and people who are going to gravitate to her for her set of reasons. That's right. So it's, I'm, and sometimes I take on people who are with an agent that, for whatever reason, they've gone as far as they can go. Right. And then I think if I could really do something different, I'm not going to just take on somebody for the take of, sake of taking them on, mm-hmm. but if I go, I know what I could do that would make this be different for them, like Marco Beltrami or most recently really talented guy, Rob Simonson, mm-hmm. I thought I could probably bring some new things that would and open new doors. Like Rob... I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a terrific composer, and he should be doing Weinstein movies, those kind of mm-hmm. classy dramas that have intelligent scores. So what will you do? You'll reach out to Weinstein? Yes, to and Harvey? I signed him the first week of signing him. I got him a Weinstein movie. Oh, that's terrific. And Because I knew I had the access to the people, and the people at Weinstein 
I so rarely tell them, oh my God, I just signed somebody I think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So if I am saying that, it takes on some meaning. And I knew he was a good match with the music supervisor mm -hmm. and the music supervisor fell in love with him and then we strategized. And then for example, yesterday, Weinstein heard the score and wanted to make some changes in it. And I was very good at coaching my client to how to have a movie with Harvey, how to have a meeting, meeting with Harvey, right. mm -hmm. and what the end product of the meeting should be. And it's not just about this one movie. It's about, here's your time to be in a room with Harvey Weinstein. How are you going to, what impression do you want him to have when you've left that meeting? And so I, that's what I do for a living. It's mainly coaching. I get people jobs, but I'm very fortunate I have successful people, so it's less about getting the job and more about getting them through the job or moving into it. One of the things I'm very proud of, like with Danny Elfman, when I started with him, he was the king of comedy movies. Then he was the king of superhero movies. Mm -hmm. Then we'll mix it up in one year. Like this year, he has a movie that's out right now called End of the Tour, which he literally did for $1. And you mix that in, in the same year he's now writing Alice in Wonderland 2, where they're paying him more than a dollar. So, in the time that we have left, mm -hmm. and going forward, because I know we're getting close to 2 o'clock, um, for those of you who don't know, maybe most of you do know, that Richard has been absolutely amazing for the last several years in trying to see how we can get work brought to Los Angeles, brought back to Los Angeles, because and be competitive with the world. And I, for those of us that have seen Richard's posts over the years, his suggestions are incredible. And he's done so many things to try to help stimulate work back into Los Angeles. Um, how do you see it going now? I see it going worse. I think the, I feel like it would, my desire to bring more recording here is more similar to the clients who fire me after two weeks where it's a bad match because I don't really feel, there's a lot of complex reads. First of all, it's much easier to talk to one person about his life and his career because you're addressing exactly who he is and where he's at. When you talk about musicians, well, there's no such thing as a musician. You are, you, your wants, your needs, your issues are different than every other person in that orchestra. Mm -hmm. And then there's the people who aren't in an orchestra because there's so little work. So the person who works one movie a year is different than the person who works 40 movies a year, mm -hmm. which is different than the person who works zero movies a year. So to speak about musicians as a collective is not achievable. And the fundamental thing I think is that's missing is I don't think there's a true desire to change. You could do all the forensic work in the world to report what the problems are, but they're unmovable on addressing the fundamental issues. Right. So you can nibble around the edges of a problem, but it doesn't fix them. And so I think there's been over the last 15 years about an 80, adjusted for inflation, I think about an 80% decline in work. And that's a hole. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. And it's almost an impossible hole to dig oneself out of. And it's definitely impossible if you don't, if there's not a willingness to fundamentally identify the problems, 
and do what is ever necessary to change them. Mm -hmm. So after about two years of kind of exploring what the problems were, and then talking to musicians at every level, the ones who work a lot, the ones who work a little, and the ones who don't work very much, there isn't much of a consensus of we really want to look at the problems and we really want to change them. Right. The ones that have been in the business for so many years, they don't want to make a change. Yeah. And, and I empathize with them because I can't look them in the eye and say, if things change, you're going to get more work. I think they'd actually do worse if things change. Interesting. So if you were, because the, the core issue is secondary market payments. That's just the elephant in the room. It is what it is. It's why people don't record here. And so if you're in the position that you are someone who receives a lot of secondary market payments saying, hey, buddy, why don't you let go of them? I can't look that person in the eye and say, and you're going to pick up so much extra work, it will offset the loss. So they are correct to not want to change. Then you have another tier of people who are like, well, maybe once everybody dies and I take their space, I'll have my time to rack up a lot of these. And then you have the third group who aren't touching any of that because they're not working, but they're disenfranchised and work at Starbucks. So they're not really invested. And so there's nothing really in the climate to me. I like composers who, for whatever reason, when they're talking to me for the first time, they're in the place of, things are a mess. It was Jerry Goldsmith, my favorite, I mean, my God, Jerry Goldsmith showed up. I had one client, Danny Elfman, and Jerry said, why is Danny doing better than I am? Interesting. And okay. I was 28 years old, and I arrogantly said, because I'm his agent. And I didn't mean it completely facetiously because I laid out what I would do for Jerry. And I knew enough I could improvise the forensic work. I said, the problem is you work with the same people and their careers aren't going well anymore. So you have to work with brand new people and you're perceived as a god on Mount Olympus. Right. So you need to start calling up filmmakers and telling them you want to work with them. You want to do that film. Yeah, and Jerry's like, I don't do that. I go, I know that. That's why you're asking me why Danny Elfman's doing better. Mm -hmm. And I hit Jerry Goldsmith at a perfect moment in his life where he said, you know what? I was able to mess up my career. I have to trust somebody. You're passionate. I'm decided to trust you. And fortunately, the first thing I did was put, I gave him a list of every movie being made. I said, which one do you want to do? And it was Russia House. I talked to the director. The director gave me every objection to Jerry. I combated everyone by sending additional music. It boiled down to, Jerry, here's the director's phone number. Call him up and say you want the job. Because he's hiring Michael Kamen if you don't. Because Michael Kamen has made it very clear he wants to do it. And you're scary. You're a guy who, it's like, I admire him, but will I ever be able to give him notes? You need to let this director know it's going to go well. Right. And, you know, just as far as being proactive like that, years ago when Basil Polidorus was alive, unfortunately, he's, we've lost him, he was a phenomenal composer. But his wife, Bobby, yeah. was so proactive in staying on top of everything. I mean, you... Right, but he was, I remember... I was Basil's agent. I'd be at a lunch going over projects. I could just see his eyes drifting off to the horizon. Mm -hmm. He had lost 
interest. It hurts to be rejected. Yeah. And there are people who are wounded deeply and don't recover. And I remember Basil was, age-wise, he wasn't an old guard, but he wasn't the new young guy. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my things was, you've written this incredible action music, but because of technology, it sounds dated. Mm -hmm. Things that you did five years ago, you're now competing with Hans Zimmer, who has much better sounds than you do, but your compositions are brilliant. Why don't you re-record three or four of your best pieces as if you were doing the job now using sounds and as I'm saying these words, instead of looking at the face of somebody going, okay, yeah, it was much mm -hmm. more of a, I'm defeated, it's all over. Yeah. And I get it. It's not fun to get older. It's and reinvent not, yourself. It's not fun to reinvent yourself unless you're a reinvention junkie, which I am. You certainly so are. So I don't need <laughs> someone to convince me to reinvent myself. It's like, oh my God, if I'm stagnant or doing the same thing, I be miserable. Well, look at you now, what you're doing with the live shows. Do you yeah. want to talk for a moment about it before we yeah, have to Yeah, I just stop? came back. I've now gotten very much into pr producing live concerts of film-related stuff, and we just did at Lincoln Center a week of a show I produced of Danny Elfman's music for the films of Tim Burton, and got PBS to do it as a Live from Lincoln Center project, and it's debuting uh, the night before Halloween. It's going to air. That's great. And I was just in Tokyo doing Nightmare Before Christmas Live to Picture, where it's a the movie showing the orchestra is playing, but the new element is Danny Elfman and live singers singing along to the movie. Oh, that's great. And this stuff excites me. Yeah. And there's always a new thing to do. I think this is a particularly good time for film music. Mm -hmm. I think there's more interest in it than there's ever been before. And a guy, any young person can afford to record a score because of technology. Like, you could have an amazing sound library and not be rich. And so then... There used to be so many barriers to becoming a film composer. Let's start with, you had to be a guy. That's a basic one. You were probably white, mm -hmm. you're probably Jewish or Italian, mm -hmm. and you probably went to a conservatory. <laughs> so if you didn't fit in that group, you weren't even in the consideration to be a film composer. Now everybody wants to be a film composer. It's the only paying job in music, and Every school has a film music department, which means you have tons of people who aren't going to make it just because mathematically they okay. can't. But boy, if I was talented and had drive, the access is the best it's ever been. Instead of just sitting home, you can just score someone's webisodes. There's always something to work on. Right. Yeah. So, um... Oh, wait, there's a question. Oh, sorry. Dwayne? There's basically two types of music supervision. One is the person who picks songs that are in the movie. So, for example, represent the uh, music supervisor on Straight Outta Compton, and that was a combination job of working on which songs are going to be in the movie and how they're going to be performed live on camera. There's three types of music supervisors. You pick the songs, you're the music supervisor on a musical who is on set working with, first you record the songs and you do the playbacks, 
or the third type of music supervisor Jimson. is basically the music department. Mm -hmm. They're helping pick the composer. They're coordinating the scoring dates. And there used to be an adversarial relationship between composers and music supervisors. That is passe. They are now, composers are grateful there's somebody else working on the music because another huge change, when Jerry Goldsmith used to write film scores, all he did was write film scores. And usually it was meaning you take a pencil and you notate on a piece of paper and you hand it in, and that was your job. Now every composer has assumed that your job at the bare minimum is to mock up every piece of music and play it back. So you have to have the ability and the equipment to produce slick master recordings. And nowadays, increasingly, they're packaging the score, which makes them the music department. They book the orchestra, they hire the copyist, they hire the engineer. In the old days, if I asked one of my clients, how much did this score cost to record? They would have no idea. There was a music department who handled that, and the entire extent of the composer's conversation was, I want three harps on this score, and they go, you can have two. And that was the haggle. Mm -hmm. Now, all my clients are incredibly Are they all in packages? No. It's, okay. it, packages tend to be more common in television mm -hmm. and lower budget movies. Occasionally, there's a package on a larger film. I am not a fan of packages mm -hmm. unless, I, with a caveat, I don't like packages because it's, I don't even represent people who are savvy enough to turn it into a profit center. Mm -hmm. It always means they lose money because they're always going to go, I want three harps and they're going to pay for it out of their own pocket. Right. Because I hate being the guy who bitches about something that is actually happening, I don't want to be the old man going, in the old days, Jerry Goldsmith used a pencil, and now those damn whippersnappers are doing these packages, and I hate packages. I made my vow, my New Year's resolution, was to learn how to embrace an upside of a package. And for example, because I'm... It is not my cup of tea. But then I started talking to a client and said, tell me why there could be an advantage to a package. And he goes, because I do multiple TV series, I have a big pot of money, and I can allocate on an episode-by-episode -episode basis. Oh, this episode, I only need three players. I'm going to then use 20 on the other one, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do that. And he, he says his brain works better with one pot and he doesn't have to go back to the studio every time he wants an extra thing. It puts him more in control. So that is so far my New Year's resolution to embrace something that I inherently hate. The best I've come up with so far is under the right conditions, it gives more control. Unfortunately, I don't represent people like Hans Zimmer who probably do very well with a package because he's savvy of how to do I mean, it he's well. A, he's a real businessman. He's a real businessman, yeah. and I just don't represent those sorts of people who are good at it. But if I was a young composer, I would make one of my skill sets being how to package things well, because that's probably going to be more of it in the future, not less of it. Do you think directors, there'll ever be a shift in the pendulum where today they don't want to hear a theme through a, mo a movie, Oh, uh, they, they don't want the emotions. Do you think it'll shift back eventually? Shifts. Every, Has it started? Yeah, I mean, look at our 
the composer that everyone wants right now to score their movie is Alexander Desplat, mm -hmm. who's a thematic composer. Mm -hmm. So they may not use the words we want a thematic score, but as soon as they said they wanted Desplat, it means you're going to get a theme. Yes, and it's it, it it it's much easier to grind out music if it doesn't have themes. It's a big wall of orchestration that can fill up. Sounds. Yes. Sound design. Yes. Yeah. So my aesthetic is thematic, but again, because I don't like being Mr. Cranky Pants, I like finding the scores that aren't thematic that do something for me. Like one of my favorite scores was There Will Be Blood. And it was like, there's a whole other way to score a movie that a typical film composer would not come up with. Or Social Network. I mean, you can do good scores in lots of different ways. And I do, as an exercise, if I start complaining about something, I then make it an exercise how to think of what's good about the thing I'm complaining about because there's something to be learned in looking at it versus dismissing it. And I don't want to just talk about those idiots. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, as a composer, I don't have reference. I represent myself. Yeah. You say you're an expert negotiator. How many tips you can give someone like myself? Yes. Yeah. It depends. Okay, here's my advice. The first, um, or, this sounds arbitrary because it is arbitrary. The first 12 movies of your career assume you're losing money. That, so, so the entire goal is to embrace the fact that you will not be making any money. And if you get to the point where you have scored 12 movies, which is difficult to do, you will have such different issues going on in your life. You will have established relationships with directors who have moved on to a bigger movie. You will have built a library of music that's fantastic. You will have made all your dumb beginner mistakes already. And so it's glib to say lose money on your first batch of movies, but it's reality. And it's a good reality in that it's not fair, but it's true. James Horner started off by doing ultra low budget movies and delivering huge orchestral scores on them. And everyone noticed. And so that led to him getting Star Trek II, which led to his entire career because he lost money on Humanoids from the Deep and Battle Beyond the Stars and Lady in Red and all these dog movies that had crazy great scores on them. And there's very little in the negotiation that matters. Credit, clarity about who's paying for what, and if you're going to own publishing or not. Everything else is so... Well, the companies let you keep the publishing? It usually, if it's not a major <laughs> studio and they're not paying you much, you can typically keep the publishing or half the publishing. But again, the publishing probably isn't worth much on a dog movie. I mean, a real dog, everything generates some performance right money. But, and I'm a film-centric person, so if you had a different agent up here talking about video games or television, they would be giving different answers. But as a film-centric person, I think this is entering the lottery. Because if you make it, there's so much money. So it's, it's like, how much are you going to spend at the craps table before you win? It's how much the, the composers who succeed are very big gamblers and risk takers. And 
that eliminates 99% of composers because that's not even, it's usually not a personality trait of a composer or a musician to be a gambler or a risk taker. And that's essential for the job. And so that's, I also gravitate towards personalities that think taking huge risks is a great idea. And so to negotiation, if it's a real deal that you think is worthy of spending any time and energy, there's lawyers who could do the deal for you. Right. And you spend a few thousand dollars and they'll do it for you. But I would tend to just write on a piece of paper, I'm screwed, and then just sign your name at the bottom and be <laughs> done with it. Because the, that deal probably doesn't matter. It's only, is that movie going to turn into a sensation at Sundance? Is that director going to go from that movie to a major studio film and take him along with you? Yeah. So um, I hope that answered your question. Did it? Good. Okay, I don't like giving so answers. My little love note that I just got is that we have to end the portion of the video of it right now. And so I, but we don't have to leave yet, hopefully, for a little bit in case there's more questions. Oh, we can say give more scandalous answers. Well, there you go. That's right. Yay. And we but, can do this naked. But just so that it's from my heart. I mean, I love this man, and I'm just so happy for everything that you do for all of your composers and for all the areas that you're branching out in. I just, I can't say enough but to wish you continued success. Thanks. And maybe I'll come be an agent as your office. Yeah, you never know. that's a good idea. Anyway, um, but there definitely just to thank him. And then we can ask some questions, but thank you. Thank you from you're the bottom welcome. of my heart. Okay, now we can take some questions. Uh, two questions. Sure. One which I'm sure everybody here knows the answer to. Have you ever written a book and had the patience to? I made a movie. There's a documentary feature I did about another side of my life. Is um, two other things in addition to being an agent. Crackland. I'm a father of a crazily great son, and now I have a great daughter also. Uh, so I have a 25-year-old son and a 21-month-old daughter. And I made a documentary mm -hmm. about my life with my son, which covers the other part of my life, which is I'm a huge collector. I own major pieces of Disneyland, like ride vehicles and crazy stuff. So. Um, I've covered that side of my life. I've written memory pieces about this. I don't think there's a big market of people wanting Elmer Bernstein stories, but I share them whenever I can. And there's also part of me, I never want to be that guy who tells old Henry Mancini stories. It's like, I love that when it comes up, but there's something, dwelling on the past is not that interesting. If you can tell a funny story and move on, but to really dwell, I, I assume I'm at the, about the midway point in my life, and so a little bit past now that I did the math and the way I eat, so um, the, uh, but I certainly think I've got more interesting stuff coming up, so probably not, but I do like writing articles about stuff, so that's, where I put most of this. Well, you're never lost for words. No, never. I like talking. Never. Rick? Wait, I had a second oh, sorry, one. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's right. Let's, and two the two second one. Back to what, regarding Danny Elfman, if this is not too personal, I know that he is the famous uh, head of his own production, but I know that he has a, and I think his name is Steve. Steve Bartek, his orchestrator.
Correct. And what is the relationship of you to that and to their partnership in terms of what they you, know, you know, the reality is I'm very rarely involved in who somebody's orchestrator is, who their engineer is, who their contractor is. They tend to have their people they work with, and I don't really get much near it, unless some, there was like a problem or something. But like Steve Bartek was the guitarist in Oingo Boingo, and then when they did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, mm -hmm. they needed an orchestrator, and Steve said he took an orchestration class at SC, and so he got hired. And, and does all his conducting. No, he doesn't conduct Not at all. Anthony, Steve never conducted. Steve used to always conduct for On Danny. On small ensemble stuff like Midnight Run. Oh, look at the credits. Okay, you're right. I mean, Steve he, does right. it. It's okay. a small, small ensemble. Okay. But St what's interesting is, like, Steve had a moment where he wanted to be a composer, but the temperament isn't right for Steve. Steve's much happier being the orchestrator because he doesn't want to be in the line of fire of the crazy. And it's endless crazy. And you have to sort of be an extreme warrior to want to be a film composer because so little of it has to do with writing music and so much of it has to do with being a dramatist and being a running a production team and keeping a studio and a producer and a director happy and just because you're a fine musician does not mean you're qualified or have the right temperament for the other and so uh Steve and Danny are great because that's every movie since movie one. Yeah. And it's and, and and Danny's learned so much more over time. You know, after how much he knew about the orchestra on movie one versus movie one hundred, just the number of hours of music he's written since then. So it's 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 been fun watching that evolution also. Someone else had a... Yeah, and Rick had a question. We Hi, have Rick. another one back here. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm blind, but other than that... <laughs> um, Richard and I go back 30-some-odd years. Yeah. Uh, as a musician, uh, he's uh, amazing. We, he loves musicians. He loves what we do. We've always loved him for that. Um, and now that in my new capacity as vice president, uh, I was, two years ago, I was very, uh, we had a meeting in Santa Monica, and Richard spoke, and I was extremely impressed. I always knew you could talk to I'm a talker. At that point, you know, I, I went up to you, and you'll attest to this, and I said, can you help us musicians with your voice? And he did, and he stepped up, and he's been amazing. In my new capacity as vice president, uh, I think we're still really good friends, which is great. When when we came over, I was over at Grand uh, Aquarius Day, and you and I sat on the couch at Fox, and we talked about all the old oh, that was great. composers, because we both love them dearly, especially Jerry, you know. Um, all I can say is that you're amazing, and like, don't ever change. I won't let him change. <laughs> voice is being heard by a lot of people. And even though we're not moving as fast in the direction that you want, mm -hmm. I want you to know that that direction is what we want, too. 
Yeah, it's see one of the things that I'm like I mentioned is I don't have to get involved in the politics of more than one person. You know, if there's two people, you're already if you're in a relationship, all of a sudden you're endlessly negotiating with your partner in your personal life. You get three people now, you have a triangle. You get four people, and the more people that get involved in a, in a story, and I've been, I, I, during this whole thing of paying attention, because I never paid attention who was on the other side of the glass at recording sessions. It was amazing musicians who I know four of them by name, but I always knew they were great, but I never thought about how did they get their job, what is their issues, how are they getting paid. And until you spoke up at that meeting, that was the first time I ever thought about the topic. And what I realized is I couldn't do your job in a million years because everything you do is political. It, and not in a negative way, just by definition, you have to take into consideration so many voices and they're not a homogenous group of people. And it's, it's also, it's really hard I've been blessed. The handful of old dogs that I've been able to teach new tricks to have been, it's rare to teach an old dog new tricks. But it's possible. But that's a singular dog. And when you have decades of a system working one way, and then it, it's not that way anymore, it's really hard to get a mass of people who mindset makes sense. It's like, I assume when I drive down the street and I get to a red light, that means stop your car, because that's what I've learned. Maybe if I went to another country that didn't have that, I'd plow into other vehicles because I don't understand how their street lights work. And it's really hard with a, you've got thousands of members so many of them who rightfully so assume the world operates as they grew up having it operate and to say, it's not that world anymore, do it a different way, I'm glad that's not my job because I would be incapable of doing it. And, and, and why I'm so pessimistic is you're down so low right now you almost have an entire generation who doesn't know what recording union in Los Angeles means. It's not even, I remember when I first started, if someone talked about recording a film score outside of Los Angeles, that was an, a week long conversation I'd have to have with my client. I'd hear all of their fears, all of their concerns, all of their doubts and their objections. There'd be a meeting with Dennis Dreef with his magic chart of numbers. There'd be a million things to try to change it. Now, the default is every composer assumes they're not recording Union in LA, unless it's an exception and a treat. And then it's like, oh, cool, I get to do it in town. But you have an entire world that doesn't think that's what you do. And from their life experience, it used to be, oh my God, you're sending me to Budapest or you're sending me to Prague. It was like sending someone to the end of the earth where there are gonna be dragons eating them. And now there's a young generation who goes, oh my God, I can take my wife to a trip to Prague. It's a different brain. And because they don't think they're supposed to be at Warner Brothers with your members, it, 
and if that's been going on for almost a generation, it's hard to imagine how to change just the most basic thing. And since also nobody I'm doing business with is looking for ways to record here. So it's not even a mandate. It's not like the studio is going, gosh, we really wish we could figure this out. And that's hard. It's hard enough to do something when people want to do it, but when it's not even on their agenda. So and I've said this not to you, but to John Acosta. It's like I've gone to bed at night going, I am so glad I don't have John Acosta's job because I truly don't know. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, first Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast. Thank you.